Hello, uh, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted, actually, to talk to Dr. Mark Sedgwick. You're most welcome, sir. Very good to be here. Thank you. Um, now, Mark Sedgwick has taught history at the American University in Cairo for something like 20 years, I understand. Um, then he moved to Denmark, where he is Professor of Arab and Islamic Studies at Aarhus University in Denmark. Forgive me my pronunciation of your university. Um, he's the author of many books, but this one in particular, Key Thinkers of the Radical Right Behind the New Threat to Liberal Democracy, which I've read, is particularly um, interesting. Um, I think it's an, a work, uh, an excellent introduction to thinkers who form the foundation of the radical right. And we'll come to what the radical right is in a second, hopefully. But it's people like, historically, people like Oswald Spengler and his book, Decline of the West, and even the increasingly influential writer Julius Eveler, uh, he's the author of a famous work called Revolt Against the Modern World. That's uh, my copy, uh, which is still very much um, in print today. Um, and there's a new generation of contemporary radical right uh, people who are in the news uh, even recently. Uh, the Russian political philosopher Alexander Dugin, whose daughter tragically was murdered just a, a matter of days ago. And there are many other perhaps um, less well-known but still influential thinkers one could name in the USA and in France and significant publishing houses now, such as um, Arctos Media and uh, Countercurrents publishing uh that's the latter is based in the states and the other one i think is based in europe possibly in the uk i'm not 100 sure um but i just by way of introduction i just want to read just a couple of paragraphs if i may from mark's introduction to this book it's a collection of essays written by some of the most distinguished experts on political theory associated with the right um and in his introduction mark writes the following quote the radical right was once generally imagined in terms of skinheads and tattoo parlors and hooligans. While all of these do play a role, there is a much there is much more to the contemporary radical right than this. There is also an intellectual radical right, little known to most, but increasingly important. The central purpose of his book, he thinkers of the radical right, is to explore it. Now, the existence of an intellectual radical right is not a new phenomenon, writes Mark. Many prominent thinkers from the French Revolution to the Second World War could be put in this category. The horrors of the war and the Nazi camps, however, contributed to a general reaction against the radical right that led to its disappearance from mainstream politics and to its eclipse in intellectual life. For many decades, a new liberal orthodoxy ruled across the West, apparently unchallenged. But since the start of the 21st century, the mainstream has been shifting. And Mark doesn't mention this, but I personally have seen this in France, particularly in Europe. Popularist political parties have pulled the mainstream in their direction and the liberal orthodoxy of the post-war period is ever less hegemonic. Well, could you give us a definition of what constitutes radical right thinking, please? Yeah, I mean, I think that we can imagine two rights. We can imagine the sort of mainstream right, 
which uh, we're all familiar with and has been around for a long time and is part of mainstream politics uh, in, in the UK, the Conservative Party, mm. or certainly the classic Conservative Party. <laughs> some interesting changes there recently. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and these are guys who are working within the system who are basically happy with the system, um, although they may take positions against the mainstream left. That's, mm. that's the mainstream right. Now, then we have something which is beyond this. And some people call it the, the far right uh, or the extreme right. I, I prefer radical right because the, the point that I'm focusing on there is that they are questioning the roots of the whole system. Right. That instead of so going back to, to, to an older distinction was made, they don't just want to adjust bits of the system they want to replace it as a whole. They want to go to the root, what they see as the root of the problem. So they're quite revolutionary in one way. They're, they're not, you think of, you know, the right being very conservative, but you're saying yeah. it's not like the mainstream conservative. These people are radical. They want, it's like the, in the 1930s, the revolutionary conservatives, as they were called, uh, yeah. people like Evola, for example, another uh, um, seminal figure, that these are, they want to overturn the social order. Yes. I mean, of course, revolutionary can, can mean two things. I mean, one of them is that you're active as a revolutionary and you're, you're wandering around the place with bombs in a <laughs> cloak or something like that. Um, and most of these people are thinkers more than activists, although mm. occasionally mm. they go southwest. But certainly their, their approach is indeed revolutionary. Yeah. I mean, looking at from, uh, I know many Muslims in the West, uh, perhaps globally, are concerned about um, the rise of populist movements, like we see in France with Le Pen, uh, and and uh, and the argument is, and I think there's some truth in it, drawing the political centre further to the right under Macron, for example, redefining the centre ground, um, and introducing populist or uh, far right perspectives and policies into the social order. And I'm not saying it's happening everywhere, but there does seem to be a, a shift somewhere in some places, uh, uh, even in Italy now, with the prospect of a, an alleged popularist right winger, a, a lady taking power. But um, it just strikes me that not all radical right thinkers are toxic for Muslims. Uh, I'm mean, thinking, for example, I mentioned already um, the uh, this famous thinker, Julius Evola, who died in the 1970s. Um, and he, th this is his most famous book. He's also written another one, uh, almost as famous, um, Ride the Tiger, a survival manual, a survival manual for aristocrats of the soul. He's very influential on the radical right since the Second World War. And yet reading his work, I don't get any sense of animosity or hatred towards Muslims at all or Islam. Or that sometimes on the contrary. But then there are other thinkers, uh, famously the American Jared Taylor or Richard Spencer, uh, Greg Johnson, well, not perhaps Greg Johnson to a lesser extent, who are racist, who don't like non-whites and want them out of the United States, for example. So the, the radical right, I'm trying to say, doesn't appear to be homogenous or uniform ideologically. It seems to have different kind of views when it comes to Muslims and Islam. Do, would you agree with that? Yeah, no, I would. I mean, I, I think I think that it's useful to make a distinction between radical right movements, hmm. uh, radical populist sentiment, one might call rightist sentiment, and some some people do see populist sentiment as right, and and the the radical right ideologies and the people that you've been talking about they represent radical right ideologies which of course 
joined together with um, populist sentiment, anti-Muslim sentiment. I mean, there are various things there in in, in populist sentiment as well as anti-Muslim sentiment. I mean, one of them is anti-elitist and mm. the feeling that, you know, the guys in the capital, wherever the capital may be, mm. uh, live in a different world mm. and don't understand people like me out here and wherever I happen to be. So this, this, the, 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 the populist sentiment contains all sorts of things. Um, and on the other hand, the radical right intellectual positions and discourse and so forth contain something very different. And so, so now, if we look at the, the development of radical right thought, um, elites have been a bit of an issue throughout it. And something similar to globalization has been a bit of an issue throughout it. But mm -hmm. Islam and, and migration and so forth has only become an issue in the last 30, 40 years. Right. Because apart from anything else, there wasn't much migration before then. No. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't there to be an issue. Yeah. But what was there as an issue going back to the 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 nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, was the whole question of race. Mm. And racism then was directed against Jews, not against Muslims. Mm. But the question, I mean the the, the more fundamental question then uh, was as well, obviously, of the question of are we going to be anti-Semitic or not, was the question of does it make sense to think of things in terms of race? Does it make sense mm. to understand existence and issues and conflicts in terms of race? And Evola, uh, especially, yes. was very explicit about this. I mean, as, yes. as, as, as you know, he was, at least I assume you know, I forgot those books of his, um, he he was uh, he, he was he was politically active in Italy under the under Mussolini's uh, and, and was a, a very critical ally, if I can use that paradoxical phrase, of Mussolini's fascist government. Absolutely, I mean critical in that he really didn't agree with with a number of things um, about Mussolini's fascist government. Um, but an ally in the sense that he, you know, he saw potential in it at least at that, at that mm. point. He wrote, this, he wrote this. Sorry, he wrote this amazingly interesting book <laughs> called "Fascism Viewed from the Right." And you're thinking, yes. by Jews ever, how can you have a view from the right? Isn't fascism yes. about as far right as you can get? It isn't. Believe me, Ev Evola um, has is is the ultimate elitist. I mean, you mentioned uh, the revolt against elitists fueling far right. Ironically, Evola was the, yes. the the most elitist thinker you could ever conceive of in the history of the world. You yeah. know, he, he was told, and that's one of his criticisms of Mussolini and indeed of Hitler is that they were popularists who pandered to the masses, who were socialist uh, even. And no, no, we can't have any of that. Uh, um, he believes in elite order who would rule Europe. And I'm not going to go into all his thoughts. Yeah. If you yeah. want to read a fascinating. I, I think it's a better word for Evola, actually, is traditionalist, to be honest. This is my, my own personal preference. He's a very traditional thinker. And so he critiqued uh, uh, Mussolini's 
brand of fascism yeah. from a traditionalist perspective, um, which is actually to the right of Mussolini, who I think, particularly at, in his last year or two, was actually quite socialist, explicitly socialist in his policies. Yeah. But that's a different yeah. subject. No, but it's I mean, but it's but it's 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 really very relevant here. Um, but the other thing that we have to say about Evola was that he was ex he was explicitly critical of Nazi racial theory. Yes, and and in 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 one of his most radical criticisms, we can use radical in various ways, can't we? Yeah. In one of his most in most radical criticism of of, of Nazi racism. And in a book which astonishingly was allowed to be published in German, in Germany, under Nazi rule, yes. he says that the understanding human beings in terms of biology is, is ridiculous. Yes. That if one is trying to breed racehorses or particular breeds of dog, uh, yes, I mean, you can do it on a purely biological basis. But if you're trying to understand human beings, well, infinitely more complex than dogs and racehorses this is a completely inadequate way of understanding mm. things yes he had a much more spiritual elevated conception of of the human nobility which anyone of any race could in, in principle uh be exalted to and participate in that higher order and that wasn't a racial category it was based on a much more traditional hierarchical spiritual conception of the human of human beings i think in, indeed indeed so um as, as far as as far as uh, as far as, as as Islamophobia is concerned, not only was Evola not hmm. uh, not 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 in, in Islamophobic. I mean, if anything, he was probably quite pro-Muslim in certain ways. Hmm. Um, but but he he disagreed with the whole idea of understanding human society and human history. Yes. In terms of race, now of course Islam isn't a race; it's a religion. We know that, but I'm not sure that all the the the, the populist sentiment really understand that yes. Islam is a religion, not a race. And you know, one can see at, at, not at the intellectual end that we're talking about, but at, at the sort of street level end, yeah. uh, one can certainly see that there, there, there is a certain amount of racism, um, sort of primitive instinctual racism, I might call it, yeah. uh, mixed up in, in anti-Islamic movements. But yeah. what what then happens is that uh, we, we get the phenomenon of migration, we get the presence of Islam in, in Europe, and it becomes of Muslims in Europe, and the whole thing becomes an issue. And when this happens, a later generation of radical right thinkers pick up on this and develop views on this. Mm. Now, I mean, what I see myself as being essential to almost all of this radical right thought is a critique of modernity. Mm. Now, this, of course, is actually a critique primarily of Western modernity. Yes. And uh, Islam is not... Uh, necessarily in agreement with every tenet of Western modernity. Not quite, no. Not quite. <laughs> we were saying classic. So, um, and actually, I mean, of course, to go back slightly, one of the great influences on, on Evola was René Guénon, 
Oh, this is one of the the great work. I do recommend this, by the way, The Crisis of the Modern World. Rene, I mean, I don't mean to steal your thunder on this, but this chap was a Muslim. <laughs> and, he was, indeed. He uh, was. And, and this one as well, one of my favorites, The Reign of Quantities, fantastic title, and The Signs of the yeah. Time, uh, yeah. also by this Frenchman. Do you want to perhaps tell us a bit about who this extraordinary individual was? Yes, indeed. And I mean, his, his, his starting position... Uh, was critique of of modernity and critique of secularism, mm. which which was connected with his early reading Sartre and Islam, but in Vedanta and, and the Hindu tradition and so forth. But the, the conclusion to which he came yeah. uh, and the position in which he ended was was was. Uh, Islam, but specifically Sufism within Islam. Yes, very much so. Importance of that particular pair. And but he it, ended up in, in Egypt, is it in Cairo? He ended up where you were. Absolutely, okay. absolutely. <laughs> that may have something to do with the fact that I got interested in him all those years ago. Uh, but, but we were, um, but it was, yeah, his, his my city then was, it was also his city, and I, I could therefore recognise some of the things that he experienced, I think. Um, but anyhow, to to go back to towards the present, mm. um, one, once we get Islam in in Europe, Muslims in Europe, and it becomes an issue, people who are coming from this anti-modernist tradition, which also is a sort of they, they often criticize egalitarianism. Mm, mm, yeah. Now, not because, not so much because they think that you should treat, you should discriminate against people. No, no, no. They're no. not in favor of discrimination. No. What, no. What, 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 what they reject is the idea that human beings actually are identical. Mm, mm. The human beings are identical, could be identical, should be identical. Yes. So, um, in in some ways, this then turns into a celebration of a certain sort of right to difference. Yes. Yes. And from that perspective, some of them later on take issue with the idea that a Muslim and a non-Muslim are identical. Mm, mm. Now, of course, many Muslims would also take issue with the idea that a Muslim and a non-Muslim are identical. Well, the Quran does. It talks about the believers and the non-believers are not being equal. A, a, a good is not equal to evil as well. Not that they're good and evil, yeah. believers and unbelievers. I mean, uh, metaphysically, good and evil are not equal. Are not the same. Not they're the same. not the same. And and uh, so there's a built-in difference uh, and distinction and discrimination in the old, in traditional yeah. sense between yeah. different kinds of value, different kinds of hierarchy uh, in the world. It's part of the order that God has ordained. Yeah, exactly. So this this is this is what uh, the, the difference leads to distinction, mm. and distinction, as you say, can lead to discrimination in another sense of yes. the word. to discriminate between between good good and evil. Mm. Um, but this and this is this is actually quite important. That for the intellectuals, and you know, the guy in the street, I don't know. That's another, you know, that, that's for sociologists. I'm not a sociologist. That's another issue. Um, 
but for 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 these for these intellectuals one of the earliest ones to take on board this issue of islam what do we do with islam and and immigration and so forth uh was a frenchman again alain de benoit uh and benoit took the position that because of the rightful difference it's ridiculous to pretend that an Algerian Muslim and a French post-Christian, but why himself wasn't Christian. He was no, a, he's a, a pagan. He, he was a pagan or a near-pagan. I mean, he yeah. called himself a pagan. We're not, we're, not being, we're not being rude about him. He was no, identified as a pagan. I mean. That's what he said. He even wrote a book about it. Mm. Um, so uh, to, 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 as far as he's concerned, he as a French pagan and... Uh, so and so, as an Algerian Muslim, mm. were different, were following different paths, mm. and should should be allowed to follow their different paths. That he wasn't saying that his path was particularly similar or particularly superior. That one, he wasn't saying that his path was particularly superior to anybody else's path. Although, actually, if you read his book on paganism, he seems to think paganism is superior to monotheistic religions. But but that wasn't the central point. The central point was that he should be allowed to get on with being a French pagan. And mm. this guy should allow, be allowed to, to get on with being a, an Algerian Muslim. And they shouldn't have to become the same thing. They mm. shouldn't be homogenized in the name of some... Uh, unrealistic ideal of equality mm. to, 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 to merge and lose their own original separate identity. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, this is, you know, this is an argument that one could see some merit in. Mm-hmm. Um, because actually, if you, if you take, I mean, it depends which Algerian origin Muslim you're, you're talking to, but, you know, many Algerian Muslims would like to retain their own uh, yeah. religion and their own culture of origin. I mean, they don't necessarily want to be told to do this, but you know, there is there is a good point. Well, maybe in the French context, which is rather unique, I I, I think there is a certain arguably. I mean, I'm not French, so I'm inevitably going to be critical to some extent. The aggravating factor of laicite, this is kind of militant secularism, which you know the French government, French state refuses to acknowledge any religious differentiation in its public policy you know everyone is a citizen we're all you know atomized secularized individual citizens of the french state so none of the considerations that you have mentioned come into play in social policy as a matter of principle that they are blanched out you kind of whitewash everything into this kind of bland uh, this is my own reading uh rightly or wrongly this kind of bland secular uniformity called the french identity whatever that may be and and so this emphasis on the pagan on the one hand and the Algerian muslim is quite refreshing from that point of view because you're acknowledging identity publicly of the difference but the french state doesn't do that on principle today and and maybe that's an aggravating factor because people want to express their identity socially they want to have some kind of communal collective expression of their religious identity which is explicitly denied them in my reading of the french secular system and that, that, I mean, benoit's problem isn't directly with with that uh 
But he, he certainly has a problem with the dominance of the state. Right. And he certainly has a problem with this idea of atomized individuals. Mm, yeah. um, and it, it's from that that he derives the contrary of this. I was talking before about a right to difference, but indeed there's also the whole question of the right to communal identity. Yeah. And the, the, the communal identity should not have to be the same as the national identity. Yes. And th this is, you know, this for many people is one of the issues of modernity, that each each state, each nation state, creates a particular acceptable national identity. And that's what's taught in schools, and that's what's acceptable, and that's what's encouraged, and that's what's good. And group identities, regional identities, that differ from that national identity yes. are not tolerated or are discouraged. So that's, I mean, this this is a position which is, I mean, the, the way de Benoit first develops it, it is in some ways respectful also of Islam. Um, but, you know, of course, this then turns not so much with Benoit himself, um, but with one of his one-time followers, helpers, uh, Guillaume Fay. Yes, well, that, that's uh, the next figure that is... That's the next yeah. figure, isn't it? yes. Yeah. And, and so it then turns the other way yes. into, into hostility to yes. Islam and immigration and, and so forth. And with, with, with Guillaume Fay... And, and also Dominique Venner, we see this idea which is, which is, as I say, at least potentially respectful of, of, of Islam and of Muslims and of Muslims' right to difference and separate existence and so mm. um, turn, turns into hostility. And we then, we then get the idea of Muslims not as people who have a right to a distinct identity, but as people who are a threat to the French identity, defined in a very particular liberal secularist way, with weaponized, it yes, seems yes, to me. Yes. And, and, do, and do you think you mentioned those two French thinkers? Do you think they have had an influence on the political discourse with Le Pen, for example, and Marianne Le Pen and her father, of course? in moving the centre ground in France politically further to the right, to the popularist right, introducing yeah. themes and ideas which were pretty much taboo uh, uh, in the 80s and 90s, but are now becoming, uh, as I say, mainstream with Macron uh, and so on. Do you think that's the case? We're seeing I, think, no, I, think I, think, no, I think that's absolutely the case, but I think it happens in two stages. Mm. I mean, one of them is, is we get people like Le Pen, uh, who are not intellectuals? They're, they're, <laughs> they're practical leaders. Yes, yes. Uh, they're, they're people with with political positions. They're practical leaders. They're organisers, and they or some of the people around them are a bit more intellectual and are reading people like people we oh. just talk about. Okay. I mean, I have, I have no idea what Marine Le Pen reads um, at, on, on, at night or on uh, the breakfast. breakfast or something, yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah, but I can't really 
<laughs> and perhaps she does. Perhaps she does. Perhaps I, perhaps I'm doing her an, an, an injustice here. Um, but I think it's. I think rather than she has been sitting down and reading her way through the books that you've just been been showing us, um, I think there are people who are close to her, right? Who are you know who are aware yeah. of all these other sort of. So I mean, here here is here is the the first stage of the two stages. Then yes, that, that these ideas get into movements like what was then the National, the Front National, the National Front, um, and, and, and the Marine Le Pen's father. So th th these ideas get into those movements, and some people in those movements. Fine. Those, those movements, stage two coming up, those movements enjoy led to a success. So the old-fashioned mainstream politicians scratch their heads, and say, oh dear, we seem to be losing votes to these guys. What is it about these guys that the voters like? Well, let's see if we can try that ourselves. Mm. Wow. And this is how the mainstream political discourse tends to shift, tends to polarize, ten tends to shift to the extremes. And, you know, I mean, when you think about it, should we, should we, get annoyed at these mainstream politicians for being so cynical that they take some argument that they've never had any interest in and they say, well, that's quite popular, I'm going to try that one out myself? Or should we say that this is how democracy is meant to work? Well, I, I, my, my view on that, as someone who spends a lot of time in France, although I'm definitely not French, uh, um, is that you know, in my local Marie, the town hall, as a, as a, in every town hall in France, three words keep on recurring. Liberty, equality, fraternity or brotherhood. Yeah. And, you know, this is the, the, the mantra of the Republic. Liberty, fraternity. Um, and the, the, these words sit uncomfortably, shall we say, <laughs> with what you've just been talking about. You, you, how can you preach the brotherhood of man, freedom, liberty, and at the same time preach, you know, the the the, the popularist right message? The two are not, <clears throat> I, I would argue, they don't sit comfortably together. So it's that inconsistency and this bifurcation of the French identity into a more insular, military, militant, secularist, liberal dimension. Uh, over against now the other, which is defined almost exclusively now in terms of Muslims. Um, that I find worrying. This is not even true to their own status of ideals, I'm trying to say. The ideal of uh, the French Republic from the French Revolution, these are the French Revolution slogans, of course, seems to be creaking under the strain of the influence of these thinkers, so it seems to me, anyway. I mean, of course, you know, there, there is a, a certain potential contradiction in, in that slogan right from the beginning. Mm. Because you know, liberty. Let's let's leave out equality for a second. Liberty and fraternity are sometimes in tension with each other. Mm. Mm. You you are my brother. Uh, am I free to be selfish and not give you something you need? So um, fraternity sometimes reduces liberty, mm. Mm. and liberty sometimes reduces fraternity. But I mean, that's the 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 critique that uh, that that is made at the very beginning of this part of this particular stream of thought 
uh, going back to the to the 1920s with Guénon, mm. is I mean he very specifically criticizes these yeah. these ideas yeah. ideas or ideals. Well, I mean he points out that they're delusions, very often that the liberty uh, we're not as free as we think we are. Um, that in in reality that equality doesn't exist and can't exist. Mm. Doesn't spend so much time on fraternity, but he also he also contrasts these modern values or modern illusions with what he says are traditional values. Exactly, and mm. these traditional values, mm. uh, as I said before, he starts off being interested in Hinduism. Um, but but then he turns he turns towards Islam, and he finds a different set of values in in these religions. Mm. That, that he's, that yes, he's... I just want to say that he he was a Frenchman who uh, I think bought, uh, he was a brilliant in, in his early years a brilliant mathematician um, uh, and uh, celebrated in his early years in Paris uh, as a brilliant young man. But as you say, he, he emigrated ultimately. Um, to uh, Egypt, Cairo, where he became a um, a Sufi sheikh. Uh, he became a very um, reclusive but highly regarded figure, and, and many people uh, came to visit him. Whether or not they got to see him is another matter. But um, um, he he, uh, he was certainly uh, uh, seminal, uh, highly influential uh, in, in subsequent not just in Islamic thinking, particularly perennialist philosophy, traditionalist uh, Muslim uh, thinking, associated with people like. Titus Burkhardt and Guy Eaton here in England, and a number of others. Um, so his inf- his influence is still felt today, but in more in intellectual circles, I think, than in, in popular circles. Um, but um, you, you mentioned this kind of this the idea of tolerating difference and the sameness. Of course, what, what one person who is well known for writing on these issues, I, I think, is another thinker of the so called radical right, Alexander Dugin. Um, uh, who wrote, of course, uh, his his famous book is the Fourth Political Theory. But this is a more his most recent one, or one of his most recent ones, the theory of a multipolar world, and and he makes a virtue out of this uh, idea of you know, well, humanity being homogenized under a kind of the the Western secular liberal economic order, uh, and 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 how this kind of uniform humanity and globalization is is really goes against traditional values. He's a big fan of Gaynor. He's a big fan of Evola, who he quotes quite a bit, um, and he he's he's in favor of multipolar, d- d- different civilizational centers of gravity. That's kind of my way of putting it. So he he has. Good things to say about the Muslim world, uh, but also about Chinese civilization and uh, other kinds of civilization, and, and wants to see their their existence and their their difference from the hegemonic West affirmed, celebrated, defended, and advanced. Maybe that's one way of putting it. But uh, this is a big but. I mean, there's a reason. He, I mean, all that sounds all very nice, but why is he a thinker on the radical right? Because there's more to him than just. Let's celebrate vive la différence. It almost, it's almost like a, a French slogan. He doesn't mean that, does he? He means something else. He has a he's very, very virulently, I think, anti-Western and very pro-Putin, um, as we see in recent events in Ukraine. He's come out as a staunch uh defender of the invasion of Ukraine. But um, I don't want to but what, what why is he such a a, a celebrated and controversial figure, particularly in the West. I mean, the the State Department in America have 
put him on a ban list. So it's Canada. You know, he's sanctioned. He's ostracized. His daughter tragically was murdered just a few days ago, allegedly by Ukrainian special forces. I mean, this guy, and he's, he's sometimes called by the Western media, Putin's brain, you know, although I think that's a ridiculous name because I don't think he is at all. But uh why is this guy so controversial? He just wants a multipolar world, doesn't he? Well, I mean, he wants a multipolar world, but he, he sees the multipolar world as being the alternative to a unipolar world. And the unipolar world that he's objecting to is a US Western um, dominated world. So, I mean, of course, this is a position which has become more and more famous through throughout his career and that isn't where he started from no. i mean he's he's now described um uh, sometimes to the western press as an ultra nationalist or something mm. like that yes and uh he his his positions are nowadays certainly in some ways quite nationalist but very there mm. you, we have to remember he's a russian and we have to remember that Russia is different. And this is one of the interesting things about Dugin, is that his key, many of his key inspirations are the people we've been talking about yeah. who are French or Italian or whatever. Um, and but, but but he he is not French or Italian. He's he's Russian. Mm. And the the whole concept, which is so important, someone like France, for example, of the nation state has never really fitted Russia. I mean, it's, mm. it's called the Russian Federation, and mm. it's called the Russian Federation for, for a reason, mm. because there is a, a sort of core ethnic Russian group who speak Russian and belong to the Orthodox Church and so forth. But there are also loads of other people within the Russian mm. Federation who speak Tartar. Mm. And the Muslim, or who are Buddhists, or 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 something like that. So, yeah. the simply for sort of historical geographical reasons, Russia has never been a nation state yeah. in the same way that France is, or in 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 the, in the imagination of the French yeah. should be at least, mm. because that's not a question. Um, so, given this. To be a nationalist in Russia cannot mean quite what it means to be a nationalist in France. Because if, you, if you're sitting in Russia saying, I'm a Russian nationalist, I only like people who speak the same language as me, mm -hmm. uh, celebrate Christmas in the same way as me, etc., mm -hmm. etc., et then you are actually proposing the dismantlement of the Russian state. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is an excellent yeah. point. This is a very, very good point, uh, Mark. Yeah. Uh, I'm so pleased you made it. Yeah. So, I mean, anyhow, um, his, I mean, his, his, his opening position, and if you read his earlier work, um, this is this is especially clear there. His, his opening position is not vastly different from um, some somebody like uh, Alain de Benoit, right? Um, but just as Alain de Benoit becomes aware of an issue with Muslim immigrants, mm. Alexander Dugin becomes of an issue not with relation, not with not with uh, Muslim immigrants, but 
but with Americans. Yes. <laughs> yes, I think that's, that's true, actually. He does seem to have a fetish. Oh, sorry, did I say fetish? I, I, a slight obsession with him, I think. <laughs> well, he does, because, I mean, he, he, he came to understand this pair of traditional modernity mm. in geographical terms. Mm, mm. And, uh, of course, if you, you know, where is, where is advanced modernity? It's in America. Mm. Uh, Gaynor himself thought this, and there's an extraordinary exchange in Gaynor's correspondence when he's he's corresponding with a guy called Ananda Kumaraswamy, who's an expert. Oh, yes. Another one of these traditionalist figures in, in uh, the traditionalist perennialist uh, philosophy movement. Um, yeah. And Kumaraswamy has has uh, has moved to the has moved to the United States, and he has a job in Boston. And in one of his letters, he says to Gino, he says something like, "You know, I'll reply to this later because I'm going on holiday now, and I'm going to go camping in the woods." <laughs> and Gino writes back and says, "What do you mean? You have woods in America? <laughs> the entire place was industrialized." <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh dear, oh dear, that's embarrassing. So, so mm. I mean, you know, and, and Kumaras says, I'll send you a photograph. <laughs> <laughs> so, Gino, I mean, Gino never, never went anywhere near the United States. Clearly, um, clearly. There's some amazing natural scenery in the United States. There is. Um, yeah, there is. The most beautiful in the world. There and, is, indeed. Um, but uh, like, like, actually, I mean, I, I think, I think that if, if, if as a, as a European or a Russian thinker, one wants to keep a nice, clear symbol of something, it's best never to go to the United States because then you can have <laughs> an imagined United States. It's much simpler. It's not, it's, it's simple simpler. stereotypes are much better to have because you negotiate reality much more cleanly. If you know, complexity, nuance is the enemy of this. We can't yeah, have this nuance and complexity. Grief, no. Um, now, anyhow, so I mean, Dugan, who, who has actually been in the United States, but I, I've never discovered what he thought about it. Um, whether he went to the woods or not, uh, he he um, he he takes he he takes America as the representative of modernity mm. and all all the evils of modernity, and he takes Russia as the representative tradition yes. and all the things that modernity is trying is trying to destroy. So what for? All these other thinkers had been a contest between two different ways of arranging society, or two different ways of thinking, or, or two different approaches to religion, or and, and things like that. He turns this into something geographical, right? And that is, you know, that is the big turn in his thinking. And that's what then gets him going on about the unipolar world and so forth. Yes. And that's what then <clears throat> uh, gets him <clears throat> interested in the 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 the, the political, the, the geographical contest between Russia and the United States. Uh, and that's what gets him interested in the Ukraine. And he's or his his followers have 
been anti the idea of Ukrainian independent nationalism for 20 years. Really? I mean, they they were some of the first people to object to to this growing uh, separate Ukrainian identity and Ukrainian nationalism. Mm-hmm. And then when you add to that the connection, the support that the, the Ukraine is getting from, the, or was was getting, was was has been for some time getting from mm-hmm. the, the West, that produces a particular position on the on on Ukraine, which just happens. To coincide with Putin's position, yes. I mean, he's gone to it by a completely different route. Yes, um, but they've come to the same conclusion, and and hence the Western media's um, cartoonish attempt to brand him as Putin's brain. Uh, I mean, I, I noticed this ridiculous phrase being used in the Times newspaper, you know, uh, recently, you know, well, well, we expect a little bit more um, <laughs> sophistication. Um, but he's not Putin's brain. Uh, as far as as far as I can see, um, he has no um, uh, official ties to the Kremlin at all. If you, if you try and look at his biography on Wikipedia, uh, he, he doesn't have any official capacity. He may be read in elite circles in Russia, but it's hard to determine the extent of his influence and acceptance, but um, his influence on the Russian government is very much disputed and arguably marginal at best. But I'm no expert. No, I mean, I think I, I think uh, that I mean, mm. I, I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, the one thing that one can say about his connection with with the Russian government is that the prominence that he's enjoyed in the Russian media in recent years. Uh, indicates that the Russian government does not disagree with him. Right, I like that. Yes, I like that. Yes, nice, nicely put. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and he's not in prison. Obviously, if you had been a, a critique of the system, he might yeah. not have a voice at all. Or, or, or you know, or, or he he just wouldn't have access to to prime time TV. Yes, so there's an implicit indirect nod. Without necessarily sort of, official position in the government machinery, a sort, a sort of a sort of endorsement. Interesting, but, but you know, but they come. I mean, as I say, he and he and Putin come to very similar conclusions, but wildly different routes. Yes, and, I mean, here here we should we should um, perhaps mention the question of the approach that he takes towards. Islam and Muslims and so on. Yes, yeah, so I mentioned because he's well known. Uh, he, he's not shy about going to Iran, for example, and having high-profile meetings with Shia theologians and philosophers and thinkers uh, who in, who are very openly welcome him uh, and affirm his a lot his anti-American, anti-liberal, anti-modernist uh, perspectives. So there is certainly a a, a, a marriage of convenience between uh, Iran and Putin uh, and. Freudian slip no. there, uh, no. uh, Dugin, which is remarkable, I no. think. And and I mean Iran, and then also Turkey. Yes, uh, he he spends a bit of time in Turkey and has has admirers there as well. And the logic the logic here, I mean, I think we've got I think we've got logic at working at two levels. Um, I very much doubt that the Iranians who welcome him have read his work. I don't think it's translated, but oh, really? uh, 
Um, what what I'm sure they like is his anti-modern, pro-tradition, anti-American. Mm. Anti-American. Anti <laughs> because, you know, I mean, that's their position, isn't it? Yes. Well, right? So, once again, they've come to fairly similar conclusions by different routes. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, in terms, in terms of his theories, his, his theoretical understanding of things, this makes sense from two perspectives. You know, we have tradition is Russia, but it's not just Russia. Tradition is all the peoples of the Russian Federation, including Muslims, including Jews, including Buddhists, um, and of the area around that. So not only the former Soviet Union, which incidentally includes Ukraine. Oh, did it? Yeah, okay, right. Yeah. It was, it was newly, newly independent after the fall of uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Soviet Union, reincorporated, or at least the attempt is, yeah, uh, yeah. ongoing situation at the moment. Yeah, but it also includes all all the all, all the Muslim republics in Central Asia, right? And it includes Iran and Turkey, mm -hmm. because. Firstly, you know, in, in terms of the geopolitical chessboard, they, well, Iran is certainly standing against the United States and the unipolar world. Yes. And some forces within, some groups within Turkey, although Turkey is a member of NATO, of course, but, but there's some groups within Turkey that, that aren't sort of 100% pro-US uh, modern liberal ruler. Um, mm. But, but, I mean, also in terms of uh, any understanding of tradition, mm. you know, these mm. guys, they're Muslims. They're not, you know, they're not liberal-minded, yes. secularist yes. agnostics. Yes. I think that word tradition is a, a key linguistic uh, term there. I, I mean, we mentioned Evola already, revolt against the modern world. There's one word that sums up his own position, and that is a, a, as a defender or an advocate of tradition. Mm. He's not advocating radical right politics or racism or anything like that. He's advocating tradition, and that's how he self-identifies, I, I would argue. Uh, ditto with the this chap, uh, René Guénon, um, I would argue. Um, <clears throat> but there's another guy who, uh, just, can we just briefly touch on, if we can mm. move on to him, um, is this guy. Now, I, I don't give away who he is. His mm. name quite yet, if I may. Uh, his name is Carl Schmidt. He's a respected political thinker. I'm holding here a book called Political Theology um, on the concept. It's a newly translated. It's published by, um, what is it? Uh, Chicago University Press, a very respected mainstream academic publisher in America. <clears throat> if you look on the back, um, Carl Schmidt uh, died in 1985, was a legal and political theorist and constitutional lawyer, it says. Now, this is actually true, but there's a reason I'm highlighting this and trying not to laugh. And then he says he's the author of, amongst other books, various books and the last title published by University of Chicago Press and all that. And his most famous book um, today is called The Concept of the Political. This is standard reading on undergraduate or maybe postgraduate courses. Again, published by the University of Chicago. Now, why am I? Why are we both <laughs> laughing? 
Mark. What's the joke? <laughs> well, tell, tell us why this is funny. It's deadly serious, by the way. This is all real. He exists. It is completely he's a real. He's a. He's liked by the left. Yes. Left wing theorists yes. like him. Yes, yes. Why are we laughing at this, Mark? Well, I mean, he was indeed a constitutional lawyer, um, and uh, his uh, his his legal services. <laughs> Uh, well, much appreciated I, by I, certain I people. Who were they? Who remind me? By um, the Nazi party. Oh, the Nazis, was it? Okay. Yes, them, exactly. Surely he must have been conscripted into this service. Surely he couldn't have voluntarily joined the National Socialist Party before it was compulsory. Surely he wasn't the Nazis own le uh, top legal uh, man in Nazi Germany. Surely he wasn't a convinced and passionate Nazi. Surely I mean, not. Of course, of course, <laughs> of course what, what we must say is, is that Karl Schwer mm. was, was an independent thinker, a very original independent thinker, just as Julius Everland was. Yes. And uh, original independent thinkers tend not to get on terribly well with totalitarian authoritarian regimes. Uh, and you know, Evola was, uh, as we were saying earlier, mm. quite critical of Mussolini in various ways, um, and therefore, you know, was never. He was always peripheral to the power structures. Yes. Uh, when he, he, you know, on the one occasion when he got to see Mussolini, the guys around Mussolini said, "Oh my God, who's that? Oh dear, yeah. him." Although oh, oh, that, that magician, they say, isn't it that that magician that you can dismiss him as some kind of weird fantasist? Yes, Mussolini, yes. Uh, yeah. Yes, but anyway, back yes. to Carl. Yeah, back to Carl back he to wasn't Carl. like that. He was an enthusiastic yeah. Nazi uh, of yeah. the highest levels. I would argue. Well, I mean, I think you know, as as um, in some ways, it was a bit like joking. He came to he came to similar similar conclusions by different routes. Um, and I mean, he wasn't. He he was he he was he was he had a, a more influential position in the Nazi hierarchy at the beginning than at the end. And the uh, this is one of the reasons, actually, why um, why why he can be unapologetically published by the University of Chicago Press because <laughs> his, the, the, uh, toward, towards the end of Nazi Germany. He wasn't in a central position, uh, which means, which meant that well, he wasn't in a central position because he didn't actually agree with all the positions that the Nazis were taking. Um, and he was a uh, we, must, we must say in his defence, if there is a defence of him, <clears throat> that he was a Roman Catholic. Um, I mean, he was a, a man of faith. I don't mean like Hitler was a Roman Catholic, no, which he no. was, baptized anyway, <laughs> who showed no, no evidence of any Catholic faith whatsoever. That is like, uh, Schmidt actually did believe, he was a believing Catholic. And um, this book on political theology is actually very interesting. He takes theology seriously, uh, unlike Hitler, of course. Um, and so he wasn't quite like uh, um, a car-carrying Nazi in that regard. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so, you know, he he so he he, he became, I think, uh, increasingly, increasingly peripheral, mm. which meant that you know when 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 the the, the Nazi state collapsed, um, 
I think I mean I, if I remember correctly, he was arrested for a week or something like that. Yeah, but he never he never I don't think he went through a denazi I don't think yeah, he ever agreed yeah. to a denazification process. So he wasn't like, oh good, I, I was against it all along. Uh thank God I'm free now. Thank you, America. He, he didn't go along with that. He just remained, nope, I'm not gonna yeah. um you know renounce my yeah. Nazi involvement at all. That's my reading of his yeah. I mean he was I think that's right. Mm-hmm. I mean so he you know he he was he wasn't on the list. Yeah. In fact, he wasn't really on any of the lists, um, which which meant that people could carry on uh, reading his his, as I say, highly original thought, political yeah. thought. Uh, despite you know, I, I mean, we could say we could say it's perhaps something similar about Heidegger, who you know there are yeah. questions yeah. about his. Well, yeah, he, very much. Yes. Yeah. He, well, he he was much more. Um, well, he was quite vicious towards some Jewish colleagues of his at uh, the university where he taught, and actually supported their removal uh, quite shockingly. And um, that will always be a black mark against him. I think. Yeah. I, I noticed in in your book, uh, chapter four, Carl Schmidt and the politics of identity. He, he is there as a classical thinker who presumably still is relevant to the radical right today, but. Paradoxically, his works are published by mainstream liberal yeah. publishers. So, in what way is he, I think, uh, relevant today's radical right? Given that the left like him, yes. I mean, I think you could say this with, I mean, with a lot <laughs> of the, a lot of the opening people. Um, I mean, Stuger, <clears throat> for example, is still uh, regarded quite seriously in the mainstream. Um, and I mean, there are you know there are other people who one could who 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 one can who are part of this, uh, or or perhaps this is the point that um, Schmidt and Evola did not have close relations. Mm. Um, they knew of each other, mm. but they didn't have close relations. It's it's not really until the post-war period that people can be reading Evola and Schmidt and say, oh gosh, yes, this fits together. I can I can I can put these together. I can take uh, I can take mm. what, what, what Schmidt has to say on identity and I can take what Evola has to say on modernity mm. and I can put these together to object to the way that yeah. modernity is trying to Yeah. No, that would make sense. Um, yeah, so I think so. I think that's why why he's still there. But um, you know, I mean, some of the others. I mean, well, I mean, I'm just wondering yeah, why, why yeah. Heidegger not? Why? I mean, in your in your yeah. book, uh, this yeah. book, uh, Key Thinkers of the Radical Right, it's in two sections. The first section, um, or the three parts actually. The first part is classical thinkers. Uh, we mentioned Carl Schmitt. We mentioned Jews Evola. You just mentioned Ernst Junger, but nowhere does, uh, as far as I can see, does Heidegger. Appeared. Heidegger was a very prominent, passionate Nazi. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he wasn't just someone who was co-opted like Benedict the Sixteenth, the Pope. You know, who's forced into the Nazi youth. Okay, he had no choice. He was fifteen, whatever. Heidegger was an enthusiastic Nazi who is still widely read today. There are YouTube channels I've seen them propounding his work from a right perspective, and yet he doesn't actually appear in. I thought that was a an interesting omission. Well, it is an omission. I mean, and neither does Nietzsche appear. True. And, and Nietzsche could well appear there. Yes, and uh, the 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 reason is is simply a very practical one, which is that there are plenty of other books about Heidegger and about Nietzsche. Um, 
you could say, well, you know, there are the books about Carl Schmidt, and and he's you know he's he's a bit of a, a an in between case here. Mm. But I, I thought that we didn't need to put uh, Nietzsche and Heidegger into this book because you know people already knew about okay. it. Yeah, fair enough. That may that may have been a wrong decision in retrospect. It could have been quite interesting to have them in here. And I mean something something that the significance of, of Nietzsche and Heidegger to the thought of the radical right points us towards, of course is the fact that the thought of the radical right is not some sort of obscure separate sideline mm. over there in the corner. Mm. It, it connects with, with Carl Schmitt, it connects with Nietzsche, it connects with Heidegger, it connects with Western thought as a whole. Mm, yes, uh, it's a special case. Perhaps there are special <laughs> emphases, etc., etc. Et no, I think uh, it's, it's part of the it's part of the whole thing. Okay, I mean, maybe in, in conclusion, um, uh, uh, there are two um, individuals, both Americans, who I personally um, am the least keen on, if one can speak of being keen on any of them. But um, uh, they go by the names of Jared Taylor and Richard Spencer. Now, these two yeah. people are very much alive. Uh, Jared Taylor, um, as I say, is an American. <clears throat> he used to work in software in Canada, in California, I should say. Made his fortune. He's a very clever man. Um, he has a well, he had a YouTube channel. It's been closed now. But he, he I think, it, w- it would be fair, and he might not even object to being called uh, a racist uh, thinker. Uh, his emphasis is constantly on racial differences, uh, the superiority and of white, uh, the white race, as he would call it over against other groups. Um, Richard Spencer, slightly more eclectic figure, but um, and more notorious. He, he's famous for giving a Nazi salute at a conference a couple of years ago, <clears throat> which you could see on YouTube if you wanted to. Um, he, he also is extremely controversial and uh, used to be seen as the head of the alt-right uh, just before um, Trump came to power. He That was his apotheosis, I think, when uh, just before Trump became president uh richard spencer was identified very much with the alt-right as it was called <clears throat> at that time and uh he's much more eclectic and all over the place I'm not quite sure what he thinks anymore but anyway they're, they're both explicitly racist uh i would suggest unlike uh, i would suggest uh, uh julius everler or certainly not dugan who's uh, who, who says he's anti-racist he's yeah. Someone yeah. who would never speak use that language, but uh, but these two, Jared Taylor, Richard Spencer, you can Google them. Uh, are also part of this radical right uh, uh, group uh, movement or whatever are, are very racist uh, indeed, um, and, and thus uh, they are a threat to Muslims on many levels. Islam is not a race, of course, but most Muslims are not white, and so you know th- their place in the West, in America, in Britain, is threatened directly by the popularity, if it were to be, of these people, were they ever to get power, I would argue. I think, I mean, here I think we have to re- remember that circumstances in the United States are different from circumstances in Europe and mm. are different also, uh, as we already said, from difference from circumstances in Russia. So, I mean, you know, Russia, Russia, it's a federation, it's not a nation state, mm. it's a state. With, with multiple groups within it. So in Russia, you know, you can't you can't be nationalist in the way that you can in Western Europe. Um, in in Western Europe, 
before in the 1930s, 1950s, uh, immigration wasn't an issue, Islam wasn't an issue, people didn't have views on it. And then as it becomes an issue, people's, people's, people develop views of it. Um, sometimes I think perhaps instrumentally, you know, that they, that they actually, that they want to pick up on, on the issue there. Now, the United States has a very different history mm. from either Europe or Russia when yeah. it comes to race because of slavery, mm. which um, there's, there's nothing really comparable in in seriously comparable in European or in Russian history. I mean, Russia had serfdom, fine, but, it, you know, it really wasn't the same thing. So because of its almost unique history, America has an issue with race that is not found anywhere else. Mm. And somehow this gets into the American versions of this, these radical right positions that, that we have been talking about. Mm. And I mean, yeah, as you say, uh, most, most Muslims are, are not white and this, this white supremacy, white supremacism is therefore a threat to all um, non-white populations everywhere, Muslim, Muslim or non-Muslim. Uh, and of course, in in the United States, a, a certain number of Muslims are of of African origin. Mm. Uh, but I think you know, I think that it's important to remember that this is a very American phenomenon, right. and there's a tendency in the press nowadays mm. to describe the whole of what I'm calling the radical right. As white supremacists, yes, or, or Nazi in inverted commas, which is a, Nazi, a, yeah. a, a very, a very crude and I mean, it's, you know, the Nazism is an historical phenomenon, a particular time in history. You know, it, it's not simply reproduced today. There's no Nazi movements uh, in that sense in existence today. I would argue, y yes, there are. Uh, you know, tributaries coming off from that, which have similarities to some extent. But we don't have like a Nazi party in Europe yeah. waiting to take power anymore. You know, it, it's it's. I think it's a misnomer uh, uh, and a crude. It, it's like calling Dugan, you know, Putin's brain. You know, they, they, these are caricatures which don't really describe what they are looking at. I don't think. Yeah. No, I mean this is absolutely right, and it, it's a it, it's a misnomer that tends to create confusion because yes. if you if you call the radical right. Nazi, you tend people tend to associate racism with the Nazis. Yes, for very good reasons, obviously. obviously. Um, but if you call mm. the radical right Nazi, this leads to the assumption that they're all racist. Mm. They're mm. not. Mm. Um, also, if you call the radical right white supremacist, now this leads to the same conclusion, and it's 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 just not true. I mean, the, the white Supremacist version is a particular addition for the American market. Yes, um, and I mean, yeah, okay. You you can you can see uh, <clears throat> that the populism in Europe blends into sort of popular racism or in racism in the street or something or something like that, but. Um, when um, 
when 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 one of these French thinkers is going on about Islam, this is not about white supremacy. No. So whereas when someone like Greg uh, Greg Johnson, another American. Um, yeah really prominent figure uh he runs countercurrents publishing you have a, a, a quite a sophisticated website but lots of articles yeah. and he publishes a huge amount of books he's a a former professor i think of philosophy or something at an american university i mean he i would think uh correct me if i'm wrong comes closest to being a nazi in the traditional correct historical sense that you and i mean in that he would call himself a white nationalist for example yeah. and he, yeah. he he, he certainly uh, likes many things that Hitler did. He said so. I, I don't think he's a national socialist in the, yes. you know, in the literal copycat sense. Yeah. But yeah. he comes closest to being a Nazi if anyone is, and yeah. and he is a serious intellectual. Actually, he's no fool, although his ideas are obviously rather extreme. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think, I mean, <clears throat> I, th I you, you it's very difficult to be a, a, a Nazi in the year twenty twenty two. Because the circumstances are so completely yes, um, but uh, whilst generally people in the radical right distance themselves from Nazism, yes, he he certainly doesn't correct, and yeah. and, and people people tend to distance themselves from, from Nazism um, partly because. It's you know the, the associations of Nazism because of the appalling things that the Nazis did. Yes, are are extremely negative. Yes, um, but but also because you know na Nazism was a failure. It was a, a complete disaster. It achieved absolutely nothing mm. that it set out to achieve. So Nazism can hardly be an inspiring example. To anybody in their right yeah. mind, and I've already mentioned this book by Jules Evola, "Fascism yeah. Viewed from the Right," which is actually a criticism, a critique of fascism from the right of fascism. <laughs> and if you don't believe me, it's possible. I mean, it really is. He, from a, a traditional point of view, uh, um, and you know, he's very critical. I mean, he said he says some things are correct, like the theory of the state. He would argue ever, but in, in other words, it's, it's racism, it's nationalism, it's crude popularism. Uh, and the demagoguery associated with figures like Hitler, he was very critical of actually. So, and he is a, a tradition, a far right, radical right figure included in your book as one of the classical thinkers that uh, are seminal in in giving birth to the modern form of the far right. So, it's much more what you're saying is much more nuanced and complicated than the caricature you you get in the media, at least of the Nazi, the neo-Nazi far right movement. There's in terms of the radical right, um, if, I, if I can just include, just read one sentence from uh, your book. <clears throat> it says, the, the radical right, too, has its own terminology. The term new right is often used by the right themselves. The term alt-right, we mentioned, has recently come into prominence with people like Richard Spencer, I said. There are also nationalists, identitarians, libertarians, neoconservatives, paleoconservatives, counter-jihadists, so they're in there, and neo-reactionaries. These differ in important ways, but all have something in common, So, at which the book explores them. So they do differ, though, in important ways, race being a key issue, I think, where they do differ. Uh, and people like Evola and Alexander Dugin 
I don't think are racists, um, uh, perhaps, um, no, whereas others are. Uh, Richard Spencer and J Jared Taylor obviously Indeed. are. Indeed. And I think it's also important to remember that you know, we've, got, we've got the thinkers, mm. we've got the leaders, the, the practical politicians, the leaders, and then we've got you know, ordinary people who, for whom this stuff isn't terribly important. But occasionally when they notice there's an election coming along, they might, you know, tend towards one of the parties represented by, mm. by these people. But we need we need to keep those separate because although they, of course, <clears throat> they come together, and perhaps that's when it gets frightening, actually, when they come together. Mm. Um but you know they're 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 all behaving in different ways according to different logics and and they are actually uh, separate phenomena. Well, can I, in conclusion, just ask you a final question, if, if I may, uh, Mark, um, about the future? Well, you don't have crystal balls, but um, in terms of trajectories, the yeah. way you see things developing in Europe, particularly, but also in the United States and maybe Russia too, but particularly in Europe, the in the in the West. Do you see, you know, what you call the radical right uh, as as gaining momentum, gaining influence, and even gaining power in countries? I'm thinking, obviously, places like France, maybe Italy. That's on the horizon, the immediate political horizon. But I don't know so much about Italy. But certainly in France, do you see this as a movement? Uh, as we move away historically from 1945, 1939-49. Um, are, are we like to see the re-emergence of similar ideas in a different packaging, maybe a slightly different colouring, but nevertheless mm. identifiably con continuous? Really? I mean, that, that that has definitely been the tendency over the last 20, 25 years. And I can't see anything at present which is going to derail that tendency. I mean, you know, one never knows what impact in the end the, the war in in Ukraine is going to have uh, because that you know things things that is having impacts and it's going to have it's going to have more impacts and you know what what's going to be happening in 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 the the economy in five years time you know um, I, mm -hmm. I, I, nobody knows uh, but it might be something dramatic enough to start pushing things in a new direction. But uh, the the direction that things have been moving in the last 20, 25 years across Europe, also in the United States, uh, is in a different way in the United States, is, is very clear and is in, is in this direction. So, yes, I would expect these guys and this approach to thought to become ever more. Was well, a very uh, sobering thought, uh, very sobering indeed. And um, if viewers uh, do want to understand uh, the nuances, complexities and the substance of radical right thought, I actually don't know of a better volume than this. Not that I'm some kind of expert on this literature, but I've not come across one anyway. Key thinkers of the radical right behind the threats to liberal democracy edited by mark sedgwick it's got many prestigious scholars um from uh from yale and so uh, in, in writing in this volume and all of the thinkers we have mentioned today are featured in here with the exception of heidegger and nietzsche um who perhaps may may uh, reappear in future editions anyway i'm only joking uh, um so i do recommend that for further reading that's what i'm trying to say uh it's actually very readable 
And um, there's a, a, an excellent introduction by Mark to the volume, which gives a, a general survey of of the thought um, itself. So thank you very much, uh, Professor Mark Cedric, for your very valuable time, your expertise, your lucidity, uh, and and the way you've uh, gamely taken on board the questions I've thrown at you. So thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you very much for a very enjoyable conversation. Fantastic. Until next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye.